It's the Tuesday Expert Interview Edition. We'll talk with USA Today's Senior Fantasy Editor Steve Gardner next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 25th. It's show number 11 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And in addition to USA Today Senior Fantasy Editor Steve Gardner talking about the labor draft, some recent columns, and his studs and duds for 2014, we'll have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about batting eye ratio. And in the Minor League Minute, Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon talks about Kansas City pitching prospect Jordana Ventura. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Expert Interview Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Yankees are seeing a lot less of CC Sabathia in camp. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, the Yankees ace left-hander CC Sabathia weighed in at spring training at a svelte 270 pounds, 40 fewer than last year. Sabathia told reporters... He wanted to shed some of his excess tonnage after a 45-year-old cousin died from heart disease. He also said he hopes the weight loss will help him be a better pitcher than last year when he threw up a 478 ERA with a nasty 137 whip in 32 starts, making him a $1 pitcher in 5x5 Roto. Some observers say they're worried about Sabathia's weight loss because of how it might affect his fastball, which has been dropping in speed for the last few years. But I'm guessing that was more about age than weight. I think being overweight wasn't helping Sabathia throw the ball harder at all. If anything, the ball might have been slowed by his gravitational field. But being overweight surely did contribute to his poor second half last year, especially the hamstring problems that eventually shut him down in September. So far this year, Sabathia is being drafted in the low 200s by average draft position. That's about a $5 valuation. If you compare last year to previous seasons, you'll see that Sabathia was more than a little unlucky in 2013. With his elbow surgery now a full season behind him, and with 40 fewer pounds to lug out there to the mound, it's not a huge leap to imagine CC Sabathia turning a nice profit on a $5 investment. No worries about return on investment here at Baseball HQ Radio. You invest a few minutes listening to Steve Gardner, the senior fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com, and you're bound to get a return in information and great ideas. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, before we get start talking about labor and all the stuff that's been going on, how long have you been the fantasy senior fantasy editor at USA Today? Well, that that title was sort of uh, morphed out of the things that I was doing, and uh, that that title... I assume last year, but I've been uh, writing the column, the fantasy baseball column, since 2007 for uh, Sports Weekly and, and doing baseball, kind of a hybrid 
baseball reporter, fantasy columnist uh, job for, for a while now. And uh, I like it because I get to keep uh, one foot in the fantasy realm and one foot in reality. And uh, I like to say it keeps me grounded. Yeah, it's a good combination. One of the things that a lot of people perceive as a drawback about being sort of devoted to fantasy baseball media is that you can lose track of the game itself because you're so interested in the players as commodities that are generating stats for other purposes than playing baseball. It's good to be able to watch a game and, and cover it as a baseball game. Sure, and I think, too, the, the scouting versus stats debate that uh, has gone on for a while in the baseball community, I think it helps to be able to see both sides of things and to talk to people on both sides and then kind of make your own decisions and your own judgments about where, uh, you know, where the facts actually fall. And uh, I think it's helpful to have, I know major league teams uh, incorporate both now into their overall scouting and, and their strategic planning so uh, I think that's really the way to go. You, you can't measure everything with numbers, although we'd love to, but um, there's still that little bit of, uh, of scouting that, uh, that even fantasy owners, I think, need to pay attention to. I was just going to say the same thing, that it's so helpful and really required, especially if you want to be uh, successful in the game, to watch a good, good amount of baseball, not just to, to see how your players are doing, but to, just to assess what the, how the game looks, whether pitchers seem more dominant, all of those bigger trends in the game that can filter down into your fantasy baseball activities. Yeah, and I think we're seeing, too, some other things about the, the scouting community uh, with the defensive shifts in particular, about how those are affecting um, the way pitchers pitch and the way uh, defenses attack certain hitters. Um, we see the, the batting average on balls in play kind of going down a little bit from, from where it's historically been because teams are getting much better with the shifts. And, and so uh, I, I think that's, it's really an interesting way that, uh, that, stout, that stats and scouting are, are kind of meshing together. Jason Collette uh, wrote a piece for BaseballHQ.com a couple of weeks ago pointing out that the, uh, in particular a change that has come about more recently is that the batting average on balls in play in fly balls has really been coming down because, again, teams are getting very aggressive about uh, uh, positioning their outfielders much more than they used to. It was always a step or two to the left, a step or two to the right, but now they're really shifting very aggressively to take away fly ball hits. Yeah, and then that's you know that's an extra advantage, and I think too you're seeing a little bit more emphasis on uh, outfielders that can go get it, you know, and and you're not putting those lumbering guys that are uh, that are just in the uh, lineup for their bat, you know, sticking them out in in right field or left field or whatever, and uh, and living with it. I think teams see the advantages of it and uh, are trying to get better defensive outfielders out there. And that has ramifications for playing time for outfielders in general. A guy who has a decent bat but is a poor defensive outfielder might find himself losing playing time to a defensive outfielder who can really go get him because teams are putting that much more emphasis on that aspect of the game. Yeah, it makes it a lot tougher, I think, for us as fantasy owners because playing time isn't just uh, cut and dried anymore. Teams are, are making a lot of platoon switch, you know, uh, working their lineups to, to get the platoon advantage, using uh, defense and, and substitutions and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, a lot more fourth outfielders are getting more at-bats, which means, you know, some of those starters are getting fewer at-bats. Right. As, as I said, it, uh, it makes it a lot tougher for us in, in fantasy land trying to predict playing time. 
But anytime something's tougher, it usually creates a window of opportunity for the fantasy owner who's willing to keep uh, keep an eye on those kind of developments and say to himself, geez, there's an opportunity here for me to get a guy maybe a little lower in the draft or for a few bucks less that's actually going to get me enough at-bats to make him worthwhile. Uh, Steve, you had the labor mixed draft last Tuesday. Uh, how did it go for you? I thought it went well. Um, I, I think I probably had in the number five spot Probably the toughest position, I think, uh, if you get to choose your draft slot, that's probably the one that people will go to least. Uh, it, it's tough because the top four guys, you know, you're seeing in just about every draft, at least mixed league draft, Mike Trout, Miguel Cabrera, Andrew McCutcheon, Paul Goldschmidt, those guys are pretty much locks for the top four spots. And after that, it's anybody's guess as to who actually is the best player to take at number five. Um, Carlos Gonzalez is uh, is probably one of the more popular choices, Chris Davis, Robinson Cano, you throw a lot of guy, Hanley Ramirez uh, also. And then you have to consider, which I did, Clayton Kershaw, even though it's almost like a, an unwritten rule of fantasy drafting is you do not take a pitcher early in the draft just because there are so many and the, the depth is there and pitchers are generally less predictable. But, um, you know, and looking at all the factors and, and doing a lot of mock drafts, I was comfortable enough going ahead and taking Kershaw in that number five spot, and uh, I think it worked out okay for me. You mentioned in a column that you wrote about uh, your labor draft that the deciding to take Kershaw with the number five pick overall, your next pick is 26, I think, if you do the math. Uh, so you got to wait all the way down the end of first, then snake back uh, all the way through the second. So, of course, you have to take a hitter in that slot, but the best available guy was Jason Kipnis, which is uh, he's a good enough player, of course, but he's uh, not the sort of guy that makes you jump up and down and say, Yahoo, I got Jason Kipnis. But overall, how did your Kershaw decision affect your total offense? Well, obviously, uh, I, uh, I had to go offense with the next several picks, and I, I ended up getting four guys, four hitters right in a row. And it seems like to me in, in most drafts, whether they're 12-team, 15-team, there's a sweet spot there in the third and fourth round where everybody starts saying, okay, I need to start getting my pitchers now, or my ace pitcher. And that's kind of exactly what happened. And while all the, uh, the rest of the owners, it seemed like, I think we had eight pitchers in a row to start the fourth round, um, while all those guys were taking pitchers, Matt Holliday, I thought, fell considerably further than, uh, than maybe he should have and was able you know, to, for me to grab in the fourth round. So as I got Kipnis, uh, Justin Upton in the third round, Matt Holliday in the fourth, and Elvis Andrews in the fifth, it seemed like I, uh, my offense started taking shape. You know, there's, there's power there in, in three of those guys. There's speed in three of those guys. And, um, you know, for, for a core of the offense, I thought that was pretty good, especially when you consider that I've got the best pitcher in all of baseball at the, to at the top of the rotation. So uh, it, it worked out okay. And, and after I took Holiday, the pitching run uh, continued even with Cole Hamels and David Price were the next two pitchers who were taken. And as we know, you know, Hamels with his uh, shoulder problems and, and David Price, some questions about his velocity and, uh, and, and actually whether he'll stay in Tampa Bay all season long. Um, I, I kind of like the way that, uh, that things turned out there. When did you make the decision that it was going to be Kershaw? Was it at the table or had you made up your mind going in? No, I kind of had a plan going in. I, I, I figured that the top four were, would be off the board. And so, you know, I had uh, a good amount of time to consider that. I'd, I'd taken uh, Carlos Gonzalez uh, in the first round in another draft um, that we did out at the Arizona Fall League. I was in a 15-teamer there. Um, 
So, you know, I don't know if, if, if a little variety might, might have played into it. Um, in the FSTA draft out in Las Vegas in January, I took um, Robinson Cano in the first round. That was a little further down in the first round. And um, so things worked out fine there. I just, the reason that I look at Kershaw is in the first round, it just seems like the one thing you don't want to do is have your pick go belly up. And the more I looked at Kershaw, the more I looked at his consistency, you know, 200 innings, four consecutive years, 200 strikeouts, four consecutive years, ERA below two last season, um, you know, two-time defending NL Cy Young. The more I looked at him and the more I looked at the consistencies there, he seemed like the safest pick to me. And um, you look at Gonzalez. Uh, off-season surgery with his appendectomy, although it looks like he's going to be fine for opening day. He's always been an injury risk. Hanley Ramirez, injury risk as well. Chris Davis, risk of regression. Uh, Robinson Cano, New Park, how's he going to do in Seattle? You know, all of those guys down the line, Ryan Braun, you know, there's a question as to whether he'll be the same Ryan Braun this year after the suspension. So the more I looked at those guys in the first round, the more I felt like, wow, I, I really need to take the safe pick. And uh, even though Kershaw, not the traditional safe pick, seemed like the best one in that instance. I think there's kind of been a sea change in how people are starting to think about whether or not pitchers belong in the upper rounds of drafts or the big dollar bids in auctions. And it has to do with the, the risk of hitters. It's always been assumed that hitters don't get injured as much. But boy, every time I look at a DL, there's always lots of hitters on it. Exactly, and I think um, an HQ study might, uh, might may have been Ron Chandler had something uh, earlier this spring or earlier this off season about you know the percentage of players that go on the DL, and it's like you know thirty three percent or forty percent of players miss some time for injury, and you have to account for that. And I think I've been more uh, risk averse with some of my my early picks in uh, in the drafts so far in the mock drafts that I've been been doing just for that reason, is that you look at the teams that end up winning a lot of times, um, especially over the past few years, and those fantasy teams have had their players stay relatively healthy for an entire season. It's, uh, it's really important. I think uh, it, it gets overlooked a lot. You mentioned an earlier draft this year, Steve, where you took Carlos Gonzalez with a lower pick. Was Clayton Kershaw already taken in that draft? Um, let's see, the, the one I took Gonzalez in was the um, first pitch Arizona draft, which was back in November. Um, I had Cano in the FSTA draft, and no, Kershaw was not taken then. Kershaw, I think, went toward the end. Um, Chris Liss, I believe, uh, had pick number 11, and, and I was at 8 um, to take Cano. So, you know, my, my thinking has kind of evolved a little bit, um, and plus, you know, I, I have uh, Howard Kamen and I are both uh, kind of tag teaming on uh, on that FSTA team. So when you're drafting with a partner, you know it, it's uh, a little tougher to maybe go out on the limb. But um, the more I look at Kershaw and the more I have over the past month or so, uh, the more I like him as a you know as a top pick there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner, senior fantasy editor at USA Today and USAToday.com, and. Steve, uh, in the third round you'd mentioned you took Justin Upton, and that really looks like a gamble. I think Albert Pujols went a couple of picks later, and then in the seventh you took Cuban import Jose Abreu of the White Sox. 
A lot of uh, touts and experts are saying this is uh, a guy you want to be leery of because of all the challenges he faces culturally, and he's a big dude, and all you know, all of the uh, caveats that we've been hearing about him. Were you being consciously aggressive, speculating with your offensive picks? Um, a little bit, and um, talking about Abreu, that he's an interesting guy, and I think I sort of had my eye on him uh, as we went into the draft. You can't really say this is a guy that I want to get because a lot of times, especially in a 15-team league, uh, you're not going to get a lot of the guys that you target. But um, the reports just from the offseason, um, we had a, a piece in USA Today uh, about Abreu that uh, Jorge Ortiz wrote, one of our one of our reporters, and um, he interviewed a Cuban baseball expert uh, by the name of Peter Bjarkman, who has followed Cuban baseball for for a long time, um, has seen the national team play over and over and over again. Even a couple years back, uh, was saying that Abreu is probably the best. Cuban or the second best Cuban hitter, certainly the best to come to the major leagues, even better than Yasiel Puig, even better than Joanna Cespedes, um, that Abreu has that kind of hitting ability. And um, I think the fact that with, with Abreu on the White Sox, where Diane Vesiedo and uh, Alexi Ramirez are, you know, two other ex-Cubans or Cubans who've come over, um, I think that's going to make his transition easier. So uh, with, the, with the ballpark, very conducive to right-handed power, Abreu seems like a really good sleeper kind of pick for me. And so with him in the back of my mind, um, I did pass on pool holes. And, uh, you know, we talk about safety and, and, uh, and injury concerns and things like that. Pool holes, it, it does have those. Um, and Upton, a, a younger um, I, I think uh, has the power and the speed combination, which which I like, and I think Upton is ready to bounce back this season, uh, second season in Atlanta. So, you know, I, with that kind of talent in the third round, um, I'm I'm kind of willing to gamble on Upton. Although I have to admit, I would have taken Jose Bautista if he didn't go the pick before, um, just because of his elite power. I think that's one of the trends that we're seeing, is that uh, people are jumping on power and and really latching on to that because home runs are down overall and have been for the last several years. It is hard to find power. Sounds like you did a good job getting those two guys. When you mentioned uh, Jose Abreu's park, I talked about Jose Abreu with Gene McCaffrey last week on Baseball HQ Radio, and he mentioned something I hadn't thought about, that when Jose Abreu's up in Chicago in April and maybe in late September, it's not going to be the most comfortable feeling he's ever had temperature-wise. He's not probably used to playing out there with a baseball cap that has ear flaps. Well, and you know, I think that'll be one of the interesting things to see this spring because the weather is going to be great in Arizona. And so Abreu may, you know, he may end up with 10 or 12 home runs in spring training, and it may not translate right away uh, as, the, as the season begins. But um, I think over the course of the full year, though, we're going to see a, a pretty doggone good uh, power hitter there in Chicago. Steve, I was kind of surprised to see the starting pitchers who went after Kershaw. Uh, you Darvish in the second round, I guess we can expect that. But the run on starters really got going in the third round and then in the early fourth. But it started with Cliff Lee and then Chris Sale. Now, they're both good starters, but they're on questionable teams and they both went ahead of more highly touted starters on better teams, like the run of Strasburg, Scherzer, Wainwright, Felix Hernandez, and Verlander in the top of the fourth. 
How surprised were you that Lee and Sale went ahead of those much higher-touted starters? Well, Cliff Lee, I do like. I mean, again, consistency. Um, I do like Cliff Lee. I don't like the Phillies, though. So um, the, the win totals, as we've seen with Lee and Cole Hamels, you know, can fluctuate uh, a whole lot from year to year. But still, with Lee, you know you're going to get strikeouts. He doesn't walk anybody, so you're going to get a great whip, and you're going to get a pretty good ERA as well. So I, I don't mind Cliff Lee. Chris Sale, a little different, doesn't have the, the lengthy track record. But, you know, Jason Collette and Paul Sporer, the, you know, it, if anything, those guys know pitching very well. And um, going back-to-back with Sale and Scherzer, um, you got both of those guys. I wouldn't uh, – it may look a little different had they been flipped and they'd taken Scherzer first and then Sale. Um, so I, I think in that regard, they're, they're comparable. I would rather have Scherzer. But um, it, it was surprising kind of the order that uh, that those guys went in because – like I say, I, I like Adam Wainwright even better than uh, than anybody except for Darvish and Kershaw, and uh, right. you know, he was way down that list, what fifth or sixth, even uh, off the board. So, it, I think that's one of those things that you just look at um, when the pitching run starts and those aces go off the board. There may be ten, twelve, thirteen uh, real top-notch SP one kind of pitchers, and uh, once they start going. You know, watch out if you're in a snake draft because they're going to go off the board quickly. Any other surprises with particular players in the draft going way higher or way lower than you thought? Um, I thought Matt Kemp was one that that fell. Guys with injury concerns. Um, I don't know uh, since news is relatively fresh if we maybe have a recency bias because Matt Kemp, you know, a guy who if he's healthy could be a top five overall player went in the fifth round, and uh, I thought that was a really good buy for Jeff Erickson on that end of the, uh, of the draft. He was, he was on the back end at pick 15, uh, and he got uh, Kemp with the, um, yeah, I guess the fifth round, last pick of the fifth round. Uh, fantastic, fantastic bargain to me. Um, so that was one. And then, you know, for my team, too, Manny Machado fell awfully far, I thought. Um, ended up with him as... as Third base was was my uh, the void that I had to wait to fill, and uh, Manny Machado in round nine seemed like a pretty decent uh, value to me because he fell that far. You know, it looks like he's going to be on track for for spring training, and um, should be from all indications uh, ready, uh, if not full strength, very very close on opening day. So um, a guy again, young guy with upside. I think that was. That was kind of the theme of, of my draft, and uh, Machado fit right in. Other than uh, you taking uh, Kershaw with the number 5 overall pick, which is probably came as something of a surprise to a lot of guys at the table, did you see any other strategies at the table that uh, surprised you or any trends as far as you know, closers going earlier or late th- later than you thought, uh, starting pitchers other than what we've already discussed, going earlier or later than you thought, uh, power, speed, anything like that? Yeah, I think in general, you know, the, it, it's probably the way that most drafts are going to go, that there's a premium on power very early. And um, all of those guys, you know, Giancarlo Stanton, Jay Bruce, um, you know, pure power hitters uh, like that are going to – Edwin Encarnacion went in the first round to Fred Zinke at, uh, at pick 13, I believe. So, you know, the, the power is going to go quickly. Um, as for the closers, I think we'll see, you know, whenever Craig Kimbrell goes – 
Um, that's the, the first of the closers, but it seems like to me there's still a little drop-off for the next round. And uh, Todd Zola had a pretty interesting strategy. Kimbrell went in the fourth round, um, and Zola came back on the wheel at uh, five and six and picked two closers in Aroldis Chapman and David Robertson, which I think you know, is an interesting strategy there. That kind of kicked off a, a little bit of a mini run for closers, um, I think four or five of them went within the next round after that. So um, it's one of those things you just you can't go in with a set strategy. I, I think that's the uh, the takeaway that I get, that, that every draft, it's cliche, but every draft is different, and you just have to adapt to the room and, and see what's there and uh, try and formulate your strategy as you go. When are the uh, labor auction leagues going to be? First for the AL and March second for the NL in uh, in Phoenix, uh, and we're wow, you know it's it's right around the corner as as teams are reporting to to spring training, and uh, we're we're going to be out there. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's definitely sneaking up on us. You guys are on Sirius XM again this year. Yes, Sirius XM will be broadcasting live, and um, we'll have the draft grid up on uh, rtsports.com as we did last year, so people can follow along. As as with the labor mix draft, um, we'll we'll have that link available, and we'll tweet that out and and provide it so that people can follow the uh, the live picks as they happen and uh, see the prices. And I think that's one of the big things because with labor. You know, we've got the FSTAs and and all the other um, the draft leagues and and mocks that are going on. You don't see as many auction drafts, and I think labor kind of sets the bar for auction prices for AL and NL only leagues. And uh, you know, we kind of wear that badge of honor as as the trendsetter. So um, it'll it'll be interesting, very interesting to see how the experts uh, value these guys in in auction leagues. And then Towers, of course, also auction leagues. Uh, how do you think home players should use these experts' drafts? You've got Labor, you've got Towers doing auctions and drafts, and uh, you're sitting at home and you're looking at the draft grid. How do you apply it to your own situation? Well, I, I think it, it gives you a baseline. I don't think um, I don't think you can take the values as gospel just because you know later in the drafts people have you know, too much money or not enough money and, and bargains come about. I think for the most part, the first half of the draft, you can see pretty much the values that, that those guys should be going for. You can see you know, which owners uh, tend to like certain players more than others and, and how their strategies evolve. And, and as you're watching, if you don't have SiriusXM and, and can listen to the analysis, you know, you can kind of play along. I think that's the, the interesting part about labor now that we have the draft live online is that you can see, okay, if this guy is going for that, here's what I think the next guy is going for. And, uh, you know, so if Billy Hamilton comes out and goes for 25 bucks, you know, what will Ben Revere go for when essentially they're, they're pretty much the same player, uh, except that, uh, you know, Hamilton's got a, a lot more hype. I think those are kinds of things that um, that make it interesting for uh, for other fantasy owners when when the labor drafts are are going on. Steve, you mentioned Billy Hamilton, and I meant to ask you when we were talking about your labor draft, where did Billy Hamilton go in that draft? Middle of the sixth round um, to the baseball prospectus team. So that's and you know that's that's right about where he's been going in, in a lot of the drafts in that seventy five to ninety five range. Um, he's a really interesting case, and I think uh, 
we've we've talked about him so much, and I think we'll continue to talk about him through the course of uh, of the spring, just because he's such a big unknown, and there's so many different opinions of you know what kind of player he will be. Will he be a full time player? Um, you know, could he steal? 80, 90 bases. Can he win the category for you on his own? Um, or will he fall flat and go back to AAA? I mean, that's, that's also in the realm of possibilities. There, there are just so many, such a range, a wide range of outcomes for him that uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch what happens and see, you know, how people draft, uh, draft him and, and value him because you could get, um, you could get so many different, uh, different people uh, with different opinions, and, and uh, if you asked, you know, five or six people, uh, you may not get the same answer twice. No, and of course, it's so far in advance of spring training, Steve. We really don't know what this guy is going to do. And as we get closer to opening day, we have a firmer idea of Hamilton's playing time, how well he can hit, all these kind of things. That draft position may bounce around a little bit. Well, I think two other things um, on on Hamilton is. Um, a lot of the discussion, too, if you're in an NFBC league, for instance, um, where there's no trading and there is a grand prize at the end, you need some of those kind of long shots to pay off. And, um, and I think that's why Hamilton gets a lot of love in the NFBC, because you know, he can give you that huge hammer in stolen bases that um, that you won't get anywhere else. So I think that's one of the things. And number two, in leagues that you can trade, here's where I think Hamilton has a little bit of hidden value because let's just say, for instance, that he is able to win a full-time job, play every day, get on base enough, and steal enough bases to give you the, the huge stolen base totals. By August, you may be running away with the category and be able to trade him to the team of your choice and control the stolen base category in a second way. So, I mean, he gives you leverage that you don't get with really any other player. You know, at the trade deadline, saves and steals are the hottest commodities. And to be able to handpick who you want to send Billy Hamilton to in your league, I think that's a huge advantage that's not really getting talked about a whole lot. And I think that gives him extra value in, uh, in leagues that you can trade in. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, Steve, Tout Wars has gone to on-base percentage instead of batting average now in all of its leagues, and I'm curious what you think about that step. I think it's good. Um, I, I, I like the idea just because, you know, it seems like symmetry is, is in, in order because in pitching you count walks with a pitcher's whip. So why not count walks for a player getting on base. I mean, uh, it, it, it makes sense, um, especially, I think one of the things, too, in fantasy is we use it to understand the game itself better. Uh, I think there, there's no doubt that I, any fantasy owner you ask, if you say, has fantasy helped you understand the game and enjoy the game more, uh, the answer would be yes. And with the importance of on-base percentage. We see now um, how teams and pretty much everyone has accepted the fact that on-base percentage is very important in the, uh, in the real game of baseball. I think it adds to the realism of fantasy baseball. Uh, and so in that regard, I think it's a good idea to, uh, to look at on-base percentage rather than batting average, which can fluctuate. I mean, we've seen in, um, in labor and tout wars just last year 
Uh, Larry Schechter punted batting average in AL Labor, won the league. Uh, Tristan Cockroft punted batting average on draft day in NL Tout Wars, won the league. So I think we're looking at ways to say, okay, batting average is kind of a fluky stat, the way that, uh, that it ends up, because it doesn't really reflect the, the true desires and the goals of a player when he gets up to bat. Um, it's get on base. Yes, you want to hit home runs and, and drive runners in, but the bottom line is not making it out. And, uh, and I think that's, a, that's a, a good way to approach it from a fantasy standpoint as well. When in the discussion that circulated around the decision in Tout Wars whether to move from batting average to on-base percentage, the concern was that by moving to on-base percentage when most leagues are still using batting average, you, you risk irrelevance. And then on the other hand, some of the people who were in favor of it said, hey, we were the first ones to get into 5x5, five five, and, and basically the whole, the whole game followed us into that move, and maybe they can be on the f- forefront of getting uh, more fantasy leagues to use on-base percentage. I don't know. We'll, I guess we'll see. Is Labor planning on doing anything with batting average versus on-base? No. And I think the reason uh, Labor, I, I, I feel like, um, and, and judging from what we try and do and the focus of our audience at USA Today and Sports Weekly, is more of the general fantasy baseball uh, player. And, and I think while Tout Wars, uh, I think it's great to be on the cutting edge. And I know that, uh, that Ron Chandler and Laura Michaels and, and Jeff Erickson and those guys um, uh, take kind of pride in the fact that, that, that Tout Wars kind of pushes the envelope a little bit. Um, I think for labor, we're more the, the common man's fantasy baseball. And uh, I think we will, we will be later to, uh, to go to on-base percentage um, if that's the way that it seems like fantasy is going, if that's the direction. Right now, we're looking at uh, who plays what type of game the most and how we can be helpful to the most readers and the most fantasy baseball players. So I, I think that it, it provides a nice balance. Uh, I love the way that, that Tout Wars and Labor kind of work together to where you know we draft early in the spring and Tout Wars drafts later in the spring. Um, and how wars can have on base percentage, labor will keep a uh, batting average. I, I like the way that the things kind of work together so that you know fantasy owners can say, okay, this is more like my league. I'll pay attention to this, but I'll also get some insight from the other league. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a nice harmonic convergence, if you will, between the two experts leagues and, and why, why there's room for both. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Steve Gardner, Senior Fantasy Editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. And Steve, in a column earlier this month, you talked about third base, which is often perceived as a pretty tough position to fill in fantasy drafts. You say it's pretty solid this year. And you have Adrian Beltre up near the top of your, of your uh, third base list. How much should his age and injuries, career 50 games missed in 2009, 40 games missed in 2011, how much should his risk reduce those expectations? From a standpoint of overall uh, health, Adrian Beltre is not too bad um, for for third baseman. And you see David Wright, Ryan Zimmerman. Uh, you know those guys have missed a lot more time over the last couple of years than Beltre has. And um, I, I think I think he's got a pretty solid track record. I think the other thing, uh, and one of the reasons why I have him ranked so highly, is. I'm really, really impressed with the uh, the offense that the Texas Rangers have put together with uh, with the signing of Shinsu Chu and and the arrival of Prince Fielder. 
I think that's going to be a dynamite offense, maybe the best in the majors this season. And um, to have Adrian Beltre there hitting behind Prince Fielder um, in front of Alex Rios, I think Beltre is going to have a monster season. And, uh, you know, he's one of those guys that um, I, I'd like to say I'd be able, I, I want to target, um, but it's tough to get guys who are in the elite, uh, elite realm, you know, the top 20 overall players. I've got him inside my top 10, actually. Um, it's tough to, uh, to actually get those guys on a regular basis. Uh, I was really fortunate, I felt, in the FSTA draft to get him coming back in the second round after I'd taken Cano in the first. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really bullish on, on the Rangers in general uh, on offense this season and uh, especially with Beltre. That same third base column, you put Kyle Seeger of the Mariners ahead of both Manny Machado and Pablo Sandoval, which a lot of guys, uh, experts that we've been reading so far this year, would not agree with you. Why did you put Kyle Seeger ahead of those two uh, well-established big names? Well, I like Seeger, and you know Machado. A little bit of the the injury question, I think, dropped him down, or else he might have been ahead of of Seeger. Sandoval, again, injury questions, consistency questions. Um, you know, he hasn't really had an excellent fantasy season for for several years now. Um, but Seeger, again, young guys um, on the way up. I I really think that uh, that Seeger's got uh, another. Uh, got some improvement still in, in his game, and with the addition of Robinson Cano there in Seattle, uh, I think one of the things that that is, uh, has kept Seeger down a little bit is the fact that, frankly, Seattle's offense was not that good. And um, having Cano there, uh, I don't know exactly what their batting order is going to be, but I, I believe if Cano hits in the third spot, that that Seeger could hit. Uh, maybe fourth, maybe fifth, somewhere in there. Um, that's a nice spot in the offense for him. So in looking, I, I like to get guys maybe a year too early rather than too late. And uh, Seeger, I see, is one of those guys that's young enough that he can still get even better. And you have Jose Fernandez as your number seven starting pitcher. And I'm wondering about any concern you have, like other experts have expressed, about the possibility of an innings limit and pitching for such a poor team. Um. I'm, I might normally, but the fact that the Marlins did, you know, have been so aggressive with Fernandez last year, bringing him from single A to the majors and, uh, and having him pitch, um, I mean, they gave him a pretty full uh, workload last season, so I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be allowed to go, you know, 190, 200 innings. Um, I mean, he's, he's certainly talented. We saw the, the you know the the ERA one of the best in the majors the WHIP under one. Um, I mean, there's so much to like about this guy, and he's only 21. Uh, I think again, young talent just tends to rise to the top. And Fernandez is one of those guys that could you know eventually you know maybe challenge uh, Clayton Kershaw for the for the top spot. I think he's that good. Certainly with the Marlins, there's the uh, the team aspect of it and and he's not going to get as many wins but um but everything that he does you know from his strikeout rate um his control is is pretty good uh and and he's young and still developing i I think jose fernandez is a guy that uh that we will not be disappointed in if uh if he's 
your number seven pitcher this year. We like to ask all our expert guests during the preseason for their studs and duds, players you really want or players to nominate or avoid. Uh, and if you're willing, let's start with some studs. Who do you like as an American League hitter who's going to be a, a good, solid value stud? Well, we talked a little bit about Jose Abreu. I think he's definitely a guy to watch in the American League. But um, I will say, you know, Eric Hosmer is a guy that, that I've been, uh, I don't want to say infatuated with, but I've really liked since he came into the major leagues. And even through his, um, his slumps, uh, the end of 2012, I guess, and the beginning of last year, still his, he was showing good plate discipline, and I think things really came together for him. I like the steals that, that he also provides at first base. So uh, Hosmer will be one of those guys that I'm, I'm going to target uh, in AL, uh, AL League. And on the National League side, who's a stud hitter you think could provide really good value? I would look for for Jed Jerko possibly. Um, uh, he's he's an interesting case. They're playing in San Diego, you know, a place where there, you know, a lot of fly balls go to die. Um, but with the power that he's shown already in his young career, um, I think there's some upside there. Also, watch out. Ian Desmond is a guy that I'm also targeting just because of the power and speed at shortstop. Um, it's a combination you don't see very often, and he's durable. On the pitching side, how about a, an American League pitcher you think is going to represent real good value? Um, I, I like Sonny Gray uh, in Oakland, and I was fortunate to get him in the labor draft. Um, we saw him at the end of last year, and, and the way that he performed looked like a veteran out there on the mound. And uh, so pitching in Oakland especially, uh, very high on, on all the young Oakland pitchers. But um, in particular, Gray, I think, is a guy that I'm, I'm definitely targeting and, and happy to get. I think you're right to be looking at Oakland pitchers. That's an organization that always seems to be real smart about how they do things, and they're starting to show it with their approach to pitching with those extra starters and so forth. How about in the National League side, Steve, a pitcher who represents a studly value? Um, I think we're seeing, it's probably not any surprise to anybody, but, but Garrett Cole is a guy that um, a lot of people are targeting, um, a lot of people are pointing as, as potential ace material. Um, because he doesn't have a very long track record yet, um, I think he's going to be available a little bit after you know, those, those second-tier starters maybe. Um, so watch for Cole because just the fastball velocity, one of the best in the major leagues, and he, he saw his, his strikeout rate increase over the course of last year, you know, a higher strikeout rate in the major leagues than the minor leagues, I think that pretends well. So Eric Hosmer, Jed Jorko, and Ian Desmond, Sonny Gray, and Garrett Cole amongst your studs. Let's move to the duds. Who's an American League hitter you think uh, a wise owner is going to nominate or, or sit with his hands uh, firmly underneath his behind when the bidding starts? It's hard to say that Jacoby Ellsbury will be um, a dud in New York. Um, I, I think, though, that he's getting overdrafted. Uh, I don't want to say that he's going to be a dud, but people see you know, Yankee Stadium and, and lots of home runs and, and all that. Um, Ellsbury has one year in which he's shown power, and I think people are drafting him for power and speed and I don't necessarily know that we can count on that power. So he's one of the guys that maybe I'm, I'm downgrading a little bit from, uh, in my American League teams. 
I think that's a really good definition of a dud for this conversation because we're not talking about guys who are going to be bad. They're easy to pick out. It's guys that are going to be overvalued because of expectations that are really unrealistic. And Jacoby Ellsbury looks like a really solid pick in that regard. I think you're exactly right that uh, that one year of of 30-plus home runs is starting to look very much like an outlier. And uh, to expect anything close to it, I think, is pipe-dreaming. How about a National League hitter? Um, we talked a little bit earlier about Matt Kemp and, and how he fell in, uh, in the labor draft. The, the injury situation, you know, to know at this point in time he's not going to be ready for opening day uh, makes you wonder, well, when is he going to be ready? And uh, I've had him a lot higher in, uh, in my preseason um, rankings. I'm dropping him down to uh, the number 20 outfielder in, in, in mixed leagues. So just because there's so much outfield talent, uh, especially top-level outfield talent in the National League, um, you know, you go down the list of McCutcheon and Cargo and Harper and Braun and all those guys that um, taking a chance on on Matt Kemp, unless you get him at a a very big discount like uh, Jeff Erickson did in the labor draft, um, I think Matt Kemp is is one guy that I'm probably going to be staying away from this year. Yes, be very wary of a guy who a few years ago was a number one overall pick or close to it or a top first round pick because Matt Kemp, and like you say, we don't know when he's going to play. And secondly, we don't know how his injuries, especially those leg injuries, are going to affect his ability to play. That's still all up in the air. I think uh, you know if Matt Kemp's name comes out early and the bidding gets aggressive, uh, I agree with you, definitely a guy to avoid. How about a pitcher in the American League uh, that stands to be a, a bad value choice? Uh, I I don't want to slam on the Yankees here again, but um, I think Mas- Masahiro Tanaka is going to be overvalued this year just because of all of the um, you know all of the signing uh, publicity and the the fact that he was so good last year and the record of twenty four and zero in Japan you know that that's otherworldly um, in in several respects, um, but I think he's really just going to be like a starting pitcher three uh, this year. Um, I, the transition, I think, is going to be a lot tougher for him. You've got New York and all the things that go along with that. But, um, you know, his his fastball is nothing special. The splitter is, is his big pitch, and um, he, he will certainly need to control that. I think, as we've seen with with a lot of the, the Japanese pitchers, um, they get better in year two, rather than, than year one, and it takes a, a definite adjustment period. Yu Darvish, when, uh, when he was coming over, you know, ended up uh, his last year in Japan going more to a five-day rotation. That's, with pitchers being such creatures of habit, uh, I think going from a, a seven-day rotation or six days of rest uh, between starts to a five-day rotation I think that's an adjustment period, and uh, I think we will see Tanaka struggle uh, a little bit, uh, especially because he had such a great strand rate there in Japan that, that those stats were, uh, were a little bit inflated. And then coming over here, uh, I think um, people that are expecting him to do the same sorts of things are going to be disappointed. Well, I read in USAToday.com that uh, Brian Cashman 
agrees with you. He said, don't, don't think this guy's an ace. He's not. He's a number three starter for us. That's kind of what they're expecting. He's really playing the expectations reduction game, and I think anybody in fantasy would be wise to do the same. I'd take him as a fourth starter. For fourth starter money and get third starter results, I'd be happy, and anything above that, of course, would be gravy. But I think he's going to get drafted in most leagues as a second starter type guy, maybe even an ace, and that's just not going to work. How about a National League pitcher? National League, the, the news on Cole Hamels this week um, really has me concerned as well. I had, you know, I, I really like Hamels. I, I had him in that upper tier of uh, of ace, you know, one A kind of pitchers that uh, we talked about earlier. Now you know he's not going to be ready for opening day, and it doesn't sound terribly serious. But with the depth of pitching, um, I've got him and Hisashi Iwakuma too, uh, another guy that that had injury news come out. I'm dropping those guys down considerably just because there are so many good pitchers, it seems like, in that, that middle tier that um, you just can't really afford to take a chance on somebody who may not be there, may not be full strength. So I'm down now on, on Cole Hamels and, again, uh, A.J. Burnett, too, from the, from the uh, Phillies. I don't like what the Phillies have done. I think they're going to be a very disappointing team. And uh, I was kind of hoping that Burnett would re-sign with the Pirates because he's had such good success there and that's such a great park. He's definitely not the same pitcher in uh, Citizens Bank Park that he would be in Pittsburgh at PNC. Oh, no kidding. And also, he's not going to have quite the caliber of defense running around behind him in Philadelphia as he had last year in Pittsburgh. Uh, That was a real sort of hidden benefit that A.J. Burnett was enjoying in there, wasn't it? Oh, most definitely. The Pirates were the team that shifted the most um, uh, of any team in the majors last season, and it it certainly played to their advantage. Um, I think that's that was a you know from a fantasy standpoint, it was not a good move for uh, for AJ Burnett. Yeah, his uh, stock should definitely fall. Uh, Steve, the USA Today Sports Weekly Fantasy Baseball Special Edition will be coming out shortly. What's in it, and when is it going to be available? It will be available February 24th on uh, on newsstands, grocery stores, convenience stores, uh, wherever you find Sports Weekly. And um, what we'll have is we'll have updated rankings, number one. Uh, Ron Chandler has a column in there. I have a column in there talking about uh, draft strategies uh, and um, things of that nature. We'll have capsules for all the players. Um, we'll have stats, uh, projections, everything. We work very closely with Baseball HQ with that, and uh, Baseball HQ provides our dollar values. So um, we, we really, we're really proud of it, and, uh, and thank you guys at HQ for, uh, for joining up with us in that to make it a really, really impressive and, uh, and helpful tool. You said you have a column in it, and then there's one in there by Ron, Ron who? Uh, yeah, some guy we, uh, we picked up off the streets. I, I hear he's, he may be unemployed right now, so we, we're just trying to give him some work. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very kind of you, Steve. Uh, where can listeners read more of your work uh, and follow along with you? You can check me out online uh, at fantasybaseball.usatoday.com, and uh, you can get the full suite of, of all of our USA Today sports uh, affiliates there, Baseball HQ and, um, and KFFL in particular. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm pretty active and will answer a question or two every now and then at uh, Steve A. Gardner. All right, Steve, thanks very much. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, Make sure you got that snow shovel handy, and uh, we'll talk to you again during the year. 
Thank you, Patrick, and uh, I'm looking forward to spring like you would not believe. <laughs> well, it's a lucky thing you don't live up here in Canada. Then your snow shovel would be a more integral part of your uh, landscaping equipment. Steve, <laughs> <laughs> Steve Gardner is the senior fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. Always a great guest. Our Metric Minute and Minor League Minute are next. Stay tuned. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of Baseball HQ with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. If you can't get enough of the great analysis from Patrick and the rest of the gang on Baseball HQ Radio, you're ready for a subscription to BaseballHQ.com. The insights you get on this podcast are just the tip of the iceberg. Come see everything else we have to offer, now at a special rate for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off a draft prep or full season subscription to Baseball HQ. Give yourself everything you need to dominate your league in 2014. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com for these features right now and in the days to come. Matt Cedarholm has a Market Pulse column looking at the draft market for first baseman. Ray Murphy's Speculator column is looking for the next John Lackey. Stephen Nickrand's Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide column looks at Lima targets for 2014. And former HQ Radio American League reporter Matt Beagle, also Stratomatic's official video blogger, has this year's Strato HQ column looking at the new Stratomatic cards. Plus, we have all our regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes, performance validation, buyer's guides, and much more. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute and leading off our Metric Minute, telling us about I-Ratio for batters. Here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This week's Metric Minute, we'll switch back to hitters and talk about walk rate and batting eye. Two metrics that are pretty closely related to one another measure a, a, a hitter's plate patience and general plate control. Uh, first up's walk rate. The average walk rate in 2013 across baseball was 8% for hitters. Your elite walk rates are going to be in the low to mid-teens, and really strong walk rates are, are in the double digits. Some of your less patient hitters are going to see walk rates around 5 to 6% and below. A uh, Walk rate obviously has benefits for those of you in on-base percentage leagues, but they're also a good underlying metric to assess a, a hitter's general judgment of the strike zone, how well he sees pitches, how well he controls the zone in general. And it's closely related to batting eye, which we'll talk about now. Uh, batting eye on BaseballHQ.com is essentially the, the strikeout-to-walk ratio for hitters. Your average batting eye last year was uh, 0.42. In 2013, across baseball, some of your best batting eyes are going to be above .8, and it starts to become a little bit dangerous around .3, .25, or below. Uh, batting eye correlates very well with batting average, so it's a good underlying metric to use uh, for batting average. Your your average batting eyes last year, um, around .5, resulted in a, a batting average near .260 across baseball. Um, hitters with batting eyes above 1 had a .284 batting average last year. Batting eyes below .25 in that danger zone had a had a batting average of .242 only last year. So they're pretty closely related. A couple uh, batting eye and batting average outliers last year that you could look at. A um, couple examples. First is Andrelton Simmons had a great rookie year, uh, .73 batting eye, but only a .248 batting average to show for it. Uh, look for that to go up in his, in his sophomore campaign. 
Um, on the flip side there, Will and Rosario, great power for a catcher from Colorado, but had an atrocious batting eye last year, a .14, does not support his two ninety two batting average. He's actually projected for a, a two seventy four average for, uh, for 2014. So you can take a look at some of those outliers between batting eye and, and batting average as a good indicator for how well a player is controlling the strike zone. That wraps up this week's Metric Minute. Uh, so far, we've covered the basics for hitters and pitchers. Uh, starting next week, we'll transition to more draft-related metrics uh, that you'll see on BaseballHQ.com as we start to ramp up for the, for the draft season. So for now, for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly at BaseballHQ.com, and he talks about various BaseballHQ.com metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Minor League Minute with a look at Kansas City pitching prospect Jordana Ventura. Here's BaseballHQ.com Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. The Kansas City Royals' Jordana Ventura might not look like your prototypical stud pitching prospect, but the 22-year-old right-hander has the power arsenal to develop into a true staff ace. Despite being just 5'11 and 180 pounds, Ventura possesses a plus-plus 94-98 mile an hour fastball that tops out at an amazing 102 miles an hour. He also has a plus 12-6 curveball that generates plenty of swings and misses, and a changeup that shows solid potential. Ventura dominated both AA and AAA last year, going 8-6 with a 3.14 ERA, while striking out 10.3 per 9. He looked solid in three late-season starts with the Royals, posting a 3.52 ERA. Like most young pitchers, Ventura can occasionally struggle with control, and he did walk 53 in 134.2 thirds innings last year. At this point, it looks as though Ventura will contend for a spot at the back of the Royals' starting rotation, a strong spring can land him in the majors. While Ventura has tremendous long-term potential, don't get too carried away as most pitching prospects struggle in their initial exposure. While I love Jordano Ventura's long-term potential, he isn't likely to be this year's Jose Fernandez. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Cole Begarapi, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, the annual review of top prospects by position continues with Rob's look at second baseman. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 11 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest on this Tuesday edition, USA Today Senior Fantasy Editor Steve Gardner. It's always great to talk with Steve, and I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator, and Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon had the Minor League Minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes to add to our 4.8 star rating. Also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. And feel free to follow my own personal Twitter account at Patrick Dabble. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch News reports, Todd Zola, and Master Notes. 
And next Tuesday, there'll be another Experts edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.